Father God, um, we know that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. And we know, Father, that um, you control the winds and the waves. And that we see in the gospel account, Father, that even when the disciples were threatened um, by a storm that arose on the Sea of Galilee, that that Jesus was um, um, powerful and that he was in command of that. And we pray, Father, um, that in your knowledge and in your providence and in your strength, that you be with all the people um, in the Caribbean and, and all the places that are being hit by Irma. Uh, we pray that you protect them. Um, we pray, Father, that in the aftermath of it, that your, your people around the globe rally to provide resources and prayers and support and do everything we can um, to help the people who, um, who, who are displaced and harmed by this. Father, we continue to pray for the people who were harmed and displaced by Harvey, and we pray uh, that you help uh, restore their lives to what it was. Um, be be uh, the peace and the rock for those who lost loved ones in the storms, Father. Um, Father, we, we know uh, that you're in control and that your plans are beyond our knowledge, but Father, we just come humbly to you, um, not knowing all the answers, but just knowing, Father, that you're the one that listens. And we pray for that peace tonight um, in our hearts and for the hearts of those who are in the path of Irma. Um, Father, tonight as we continue our study of Acts, I pray you open our heart and minds to, um, to understand what we're seeing, this important moment in the history of the church, this, this first time that they witness to unbelievers as disciples. And Father, I pray that as a ministry and that as disciples that we're shaped by what we read tonight. I pray, Father, that through what we study and read and through our worship that you transform us more into the image of Christ every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, so we are on week three of the series that we're calling Unleashed, and we're looking at the first eight chapters of Acts. And, and we're specifically, we have, a, we have a certain reason as a ministry that we're looking at this. We want to see what was it like to be these early disciples who, who uh, had followed Jesus around for a year and a half to three years, depending on the timeline. Um, they had done, gone where he had gone. They had done what, watched what he had done. They had, they had done what he asked them to do. And now they're thrust out into society. They're thrust out into culture. They're thrust out. Um, to be witnesses for him for the first time in their lives without Jesus around. And we're asking ourselves, what can we learn about being a disciple? What can we learn from this about being someone who, who's trying to go out into your classroom, into your job, with your roommates, into the eventual career that you guys are headed into, and to follow Jesus and be his witness in that context? And we get a front row seat here studying Acts that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing to a new um, believer, Theophilus, uh, who, who this is written to, who is kind of uncertain of his faith. We're getting to listen in as Luke shares these stories with Theophilus about the early Christians and how they engaged the culture around them so that Theophilus' faith would be strengthened. And so our hope and our prayer is that as we look at how the disciples are unleashed to their culture, unleashed to the society, unleashed into their normal lives to be witnesses for Jesus, that we learn from that, that we're transformed from that, both individually, but also as a ministry. And we spent the last two weeks kind of setting that up and looking at Jesus' promise to them that they will have the Holy Spirit, that they're to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And what we're going to do the next three weeks is we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. And we're going to spend three full weeks to make all the way through it, to, make it, to, to go all the way through it. Um, and, and, and the reason this is so important is that this is the first time, this is the first time that the disciples are going to get to witness for Jesus. This is the first time that the disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are going to get to stand up and talk about Jesus in front of thousands of people who don't believe. And we get to kind of watch and see what, what kind of the lead up to it. We get to watch and see um, how they did what they did. We get to watch and see how people reacted to it. And it's my conviction that in doing this, 
that we'll have a lot to learn about what it means to be witnesses for Jesus. Every, we looked at last week that Jesus says to the disciples that you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we said that that is a command to us too. That every single one of you, every single one of you, has been commanded by God to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That if you're a Christian, Christ has changed your life and you're to be a witness to other people for that. And what does it look like to do that? How do you go about doing that? And I think one of the difficulties for us is that... Uh, how many of you have been on a mission trip? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you have been on a mission trip. So here's... So kind of our understanding of what it means to be on mission is often shaped by mission trips. My first one was the, the summer between high school and college. And I went for one week to Belize um, to work there in Independence City and then in, in, in what was called... Um, Red Hills, which uh, Red Bank, I'm sorry, Red Bank Village, which is a village of, of, of Mayan Indians there. And, and I went with a church in our area, and we teamed up with another church in Kentucky. And we went there, and I remember it was just such a, an amazing experience. I had just been baptized three months before. And now I was getting to go out, and we'd have these night meetings as a group, and we'd pray, and we'd talk about what we're doing the next day. And, then the, and the, the leaders of the trip who were from Kentucky had gone twice a year for like 15 years. And so they would just say, okay, here's what we need people to do. We're going to put on a VBS. We're going to do this. We need somebody to teach a Bible lesson at night to the men. We need somebody to go back and play with the kids while the nurse we brought teaches about hygiene to the parents. And we would all just sit there and sign up. And so kind of my first taste of what it was like to be on mission for God was I was on a mission trip where someone basically gave me a checklist. Here's how you witness to Jesus in this context. You hold the puppet. <laughs> and the kids will listen. The kids will watch. Here's how you witness. I got this great opportunity that at night I would get to, um, I was just a, a brand new Christian, but I would get to go and teach the Bible um, to people who were not believers. They were coming and listening, and, and, and just for some reason, no one in the team felt comfortable. And I was like, well, I'll stand up and talk in front of people. And so I did. And so I got to stand up and talk to these people about Jesus Christ. It was a terrific experience. But then the transition happens that if you've been on a mission trip, you've experienced. But then you come back to your normal life, and you've been on a high You've been excited. You want to come back, and you, and you had an impact on people. I had an impact on people in Belize. People that listened to me teach the Bible were, were, became Christians while I was there. And then you come back to your everyday life, to your friends, to your jobs, to your school, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I have that kind of impact? How do I have that kind of witness to people? And all of a sudden, it's, it's not as easy as you would think. It's not as easy as it was on the mission field when they, it's just laid out before you. Well, what it means to be a witness is just fulfill these tasks that the other people give you. You know, I've got friends who aren't Christians, relatives who aren't Christians, coworkers who aren't Christians, classmates who aren't Christians. I see needs with, with people who are in um, uh, great financial and physical need, and I don't know how to help them, and I don't know how to share the gospel with people. And all of a sudden, all the great feelings, all the great impact, and all the, all the things I wanted to do when I was in Belize, when I come back to the people that are my friends, my relatives, the people that I'm spending every day with, I have no clue how to get started. Like, how do, we, how do we become witnesses to people in that context? How do you witness to your classmate? How do you witness to your friend, to your relatives? Well, how do you even get started? And living on mission for God and, and evangelizing and doing all these things, it's not, you know, paint by number. It's not easy. There's not a method. If you look at studies... Of churches, which I know most of you spend most of your time doing that. Um, the, uh, so you probably already know this, but churches who are the most evangelistic 
are the least likely to have evangelism classes. <laughs> Let's say that again. Churches who are the most evangelistic are among the least likely to have evangelism classes. And there's a lot of different reasons to explain that. But I think one of the things is, is that evangelism isn't really something that you learn a technique. You're not a salesperson. It's not a pitch. It's not a script. You just plug in their name. You know, well, Jamie, do you know about Jesus Christ? Because he died for your sins. That's not what it's like, right? You, you, you are not put in that kind of context. And, and, and here's the thing. Here's another reason that this, this is kind of intensified for us. Is that if you're a believer then your life has been changed by God. If you're a believer, then you have God's Spirit within you. So it's not just about you selling a product. It's not just about you trying to figure out a nice way to convince somebody of your belief. If you're a believer and your life has really been changed about that, you should desire other people's lives to be changed in that same way. And you're empowered by God to do that. And now you're thrust out into the world and you have no clue how to do that. I can't give you a script. And so how do you, whose, whose life has been changed by Jesus, who has the very Spirit of God in them, how do you go about being witnesses to your friends, to your classmates, to the people on campus, to your family members, to your co-workers? And as we open up Acts chapter 2, I want you to think about where the disciples are. Go and turn there. Because, you know... I think one of the problems, so we have a couple of problems when it comes to Bible knowledge. One is we just don't read the Bible. That's a problem. But the, but the other problem is we kind of read too quickly. And we don't stop and think about um, what's really going on here. These disciples aren't superheroes. Right? They don't have a script. They don't know what's about to happen. And for a moment, imagine what it would be like to be them, because I think you'll find that in the moment before, the first time the disciples share their faith with thousands of other people, that they're in the same predicament you're in. They're in the same situation that you're in. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1, opens, <clears throat> opens this way. I should have bookmarked it. Uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Stop there. So... What has happened at this point? Where are they? Don't say one place that's in the text. Where, where is that one place? They're in Jerusalem. Okay? And what has happened just previously? Right? We're talking about... I mean, this is, we're going over this every week, but I want you to get the mindset. Okay, Jesus had just ascended into heaven. Right? Huh? Yeah, so we're skipping over the bit where Judas's replacement was, was, was chosen. Um, so that's very good. You get, you get bonus points for that. Um, so we're skipping over that bit. So they've replaced him. But just remember that, that 50 days earlier, Jesus had been killed in Jerusalem with a festival crowd um, there for Passover. Okay? And then he, uh, the disciples are scared. They hide. Um, then Jesus raises from the dead. They think he's going to kind of kick out the Romans and set up the kingdom of God. And he's like, no, 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 you're going to be all witnesses to all these places. And then he ascends into heaven, and then he tells them to wait where? In Jerusalem. And so when Acts chapter 2 starts out, they're in one place, one room, in Jerusalem. And Pentecost is going on. Now, now you've got you to kind of read between the lines to kind of understand what's going on here. You have about 120 disciples at this time. Twelve apostles, right? 
All total, 120 uh, disciples we found out earlier. And they're all in one room. And, and this wouldn't have been a big room. When they've excavated homes, they would have been in a house. It would have been a room in a house. They didn't have churches. They didn't have church buildings. Um, so this would have been a room in a house when they've excavated these houses from this time set in Jerusalem. Like with the largest, one of the larger rooms they found was about 6 meters by 12 meters. It's not very large, right? Think about like an office space or how, how large are the dorms? I don't even know. Are they like, let's just say they're that size. Um, so imagine, imagine almost 100 people in a dorm room crowded praying. So picture yourself for a moment. You're a disciple in the very city your master has been murdered. And, the, and, 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 and you're hiding out in a tiny room and you've been told that you're going to be a witness to all these people. And you don't know how. And going on is Pentecost, which is one of the three, what's called pilgrimage festivals. And all that means is that Jews were, Jews were supposed to once a year come to one of these three festivals. And so a lot of them would come to Pentecost, which uh, literally means 50th. And, and it, was a, it was a harvest festival originally, and there were special sacrifices. It was a one-day festival. There were special sacrifices. And so Jerusalem was, about, was very compact. It was about 50,000 people, kind of native residents, which is a little bit smaller than the city of Auburn population, right, which is about 60. Um, but but land-wise, I mean, land it was a lot smaller. But on festival days, um, on uh, festival periods, it would swell up to maybe 150,000, 200,000 people. And so what I want you to picture is kind of almost a game day atmosphere. We're in this, this tiny area, this tiny city. You have a couple hundred thousand people gathered, and these people are not believers in Jesus. These people are the very people, many of them are the very people that wanted Jesus crucified a few weeks before, and the disciples are huddled up in a tiny room the size of a dorm room, crowded shoulder to shoulder and praying, and they have no clue what's about to happen. How do you think they feel at this moment? If you were in this situation... How would you feel? Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed? Yeah, overwhelmed. I got this great task ahead of me, but there's 200,000 people here who don't believe, who could be violent, who could be murderous, and I'm sitting here, like the people that believe what you believe, you can, like, it's really just a handful of people, less than the people in this room. And you're all crowded up shoulder to shoulder. So yeah, I would feel overwhelmed. I have no clue what I'm supposed to do. What else? Little Jesus support. had just said, you know, we're going to do all these great things, and then we're in a room, cramped. Yeah. In there. <laughs> Disappointed. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Why? Um, because, I mean, like, contextually, there had been other people who came before claiming to be messiahs, and when they got usually killed, their followers weren't far behind. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, you kill the leader, you typically kill the disciples too, and now your leader's been killed. He's telling you that, hey, you're going to be witnesses, but you're crowded up here in this tiny room. Think about how small you would feel at this moment. Almost no one believes what you believe. In a city full of, of again, 150 to 200,000 people. And you know you're supposed to go out and talk to them, and you have no clue what that's going to look like. You have no clue how they're going to react. By the way, what did Jesus promise them? Wait in Jerusalem and you'll get, you said it, the Holy Spirit. They have no clue what that's going to be like. Right? This isn't a script for these people. They're saying that they don't know what God's about to do. They don't know what the crowds are about to do. All they know is they have a mission and they've never shared the gospel. They've never talked to non-believers without Jesus around. And then, 
Verse 2. <laughs> Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were, sit- where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so they're sitting there praying, overwhelmed, feeling small, feeling vulnerable, not sure what's going to happen. And the Spirit comes on them and the fire imagery is Old Testament imagery, right, of the presence of God. So in this moment, the very thing they've been waiting for, and here's something you need to realize, the very thing that every Jew had been waiting for, is that God had poured out His Spirit on His people. And the way that they experience that is a, is a, is a wind, kind of a, 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 a giant, a, a kind of a rushing sound. Um, and then fire, which they knew symbolized the presence of God, comes and rests on every person in that room. And they start speaking in tongues. Now, now, if you're in that room, what are you feeling? Strength. Strength. Power. What else? Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe frightened. The only people who have been able to be in the presence of God were the high priests, and they die sometimes. Yeah, maybe frightened. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're not kind of flippant in the presence of God, so there's, a, there's a, a, a gravity, a sacredness to this moment. What else? What are you feeling? If you're in this room, rushing wind, tongues of fire, Jesus has been telling you the Spirit's going to come, and all of a sudden you start speaking in other languages. I'm amped. Your aunt, yes, <laughs> right. That's right. That's Greek, but I think that's what it means. Is excited? Am I right? The, uh, all of a sudden, the very thing you've been waiting for—the power of God, the Spirit of God—created and formed the world. The Spirit of God brought life to the dry bones in Ezekiel, and all of a sudden, the the, the, the very thing that you've been waiting for is here. You feel amped. You feel powerful. There's still uncertainty. There's a sense of sacredness. But all of a sudden, Jesus has promised you that you're going to witness to people. And now, now, you get the power of God that has been promised. That's going to enable you to witness. What would you expect is going to happen at this moment? Right? If you had the Spirit, if you were amped up, to use James's phrase, to go out to talk to these people, 150,000 people are outside your door. You don't have the Spirit of God. And, and what is going to happen when you go out there? You don't know. You really don't know. All you know, you're speaking other languages, right? But what happens when God moves in their life? And you should know that this, that this uh, theologically, is an enormous moment. God had been promising His Spirit on His people. It comes. That this kind of miracle, um, elsewhere you see people speaking in tongues, but, but the shape it's going to take is never replicated in scriptures. Um, and elsewhere they speak in tongues as an interpreter. In this case, you're going to see they speak in tongues that people hear in their own language. But as I thought about this, I thought, you know, if I was in this situation, I would feel powerful. I'm ready to take on the world. You know, I've, I've spent 50 days frightened. 50 days open to mockery. You worshipped who? Who is your leader? Who is your master? The guy that was crucified? That's who you said is going to be Lord? That's who you said is the Son of God? This is my chance to show them what I said was right, to kind of take all the mockery aside, to take all of my weakness and vulnerability and push it aside, and now I have the very power of God. I've been one of the chosen ones, the thing that people have been waiting for centuries to experience. I'm experiencing at this moment. I'm running out the door. And even though Luke doesn't say that they ran out the door, it's pretty clear they ran out the door. Because look what happens. How are they supposed to go out and witness? They get the power of God in them. And all of a sudden, God does something amazing in their lives. And they run out in verse 5. 
Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So the Jews, because of different exiles, have been scattered all over the Roman Empire and actually even outside the Roman Empire. There's estimates of this time that, that Jews were 10% of the empire. Okay, And so you have a couple of things that happened. One is during these pilgrimages, a ton of Jews would come back from other places. Some of them were Greek-speaking. Some of them were not Greek-speaking. They would speak Aramaic. Um, and then you also had people who kind of retired out in other parts of the empire, and they'd move back to, to Jerusalem, the holy city, because that's where they wanted to die. That's where they wanted to bury to be buried. And so you have all these people who've come back, and Luke's going to give us a long list in a, nation, in a second, but he says, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who were speaking Galileans? You should know that Galileans were recognizable because they had accents, right? Uh, from the south, you kind of get that. And so people could recognize who they were. Um, there was actually a lot of kind of mocking about how they pronounced words. And, and here's the thing. Galileans were known as uh, uh, rebellious, and they were also known as, as uneducated, kind of uncultured. And so they're utterly amazed, they asked. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, in other words, um, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? In other words, how do they speak in my language? Because these are uneducated Galileans. They don't know. They're not trained in languages. They're not cultured. They don't travel the world. Verse 9, you're going to get this big list, right? Uh, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Uh, sorry, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other in the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. By the way, this is for free, but, but historically, people do not know how Christianity made it to Rome. It, Christianity made it to Rome before the, uh, any apostle did, as far as we can tell. One of the thoughts is that some of the people from Rome were here, heard what Peter's going to say, are converted, go back, and start sharing the gospel. That's just for free. Um, so, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judea, Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Um, I don't, you don't have to worry about knowing where all those places are. Here's one thing I want you to know, is that, that that's a pretty broad swath of land, and it includes not only the Roman Empire, but even places outside of the Roman Empire. We'll come back to that in a second. <clears throat> um, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed or confused, they asked one another, what does this mean? Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Translate. They're drunk. And kind of the, kind of the idea there, you know, thinking about how that works out, is um, it seems to be that the disciples, the disciples who are in the room, they get the Spirit, they get excited, um, they run out. This room was probably close to the temple. There, this is the day where everybody that's in, the, in Jerusalem is trying to make a sacrifice. So you have all these people around the temple. There's a lot of bustle. We're going to find out this is about 9 o'clock um, in the morning. And so there's a lot of activity, a lot of bustle. This is morning prayer time. This is sacrifice time. So everybody's around. So they run out and they start speaking their own language. You have this crowd start forming, trying to figure out what's going on. And the disciples are speaking, some of them in one language, some of them in another. But you have every... But if, if, so you kind of picture at least 12 people there speaking in languages, and one of them might speak your language, but 11 isn't. 11 aren't, right? So kind of the idea is that, is that if you're there listening, then you're hearing 11 people babble. And the thought is, well, they sound drunk. These, these, what's going on here? They've just, gotten, they've just gotten to the wine. 
the Greek is actually new wine, in other words, sweet wine. So the idea is that like it, it just tasted so good, they just kept drinking and they got drunk early in the morning, right? And so, um, so the disciples are out, and all this is going on, and, and they start getting accused of this. Now go back to what James said, and and uh, uh, I can't remember who someone else said. Uh, James said amp. Someone else said I think Anthony said powerful. Because if I just had the Spirit come on me, I would, that's how I would feel. If I just had this happen, that's how I'd feel. And I want you to notice something about how these men took the gospel out at the very first time of the church, with the very power of God, the very spirit that created the world is in them working to move. And what happens in this moment is they go out, they let God work through them, and what is the crowd's reaction? You, get two, you basically get two, two words. What's the crowd's reaction to what they hear? They're amazed and perplexed. Amazed and perplexed. Um, so the amazed there isn't so much like, um, this is more like a, a kind of bewilderment. You know, this isn't like, this is, this is amazing. It's like, it's kind of what's going on? And then what else, what else happens? So one word I'm looking for is kind of perplexed or, or bewildered. What, what else, how else does the crowd respond? Mockery. This week as I thought about this, past week as I thought about this text, what kept jumping out to me is this, this juxtaposition of how the disciples would have felt with how the crowd responded. These were men who were mocked for following Jesus around. These were men who were mocked when Jesus was crucified. These were men who were scared of their lives. Don't you think that what they wanted in this moment, when they, the first time they go out to share the gospel, is, is, is for a power... It's for an opportunity to do something so great, so amazing, that everyone just kind of reveres them. That everyone kind of just falls at their feet and listens. Have you ever just been mocked for, for years on end or months on end? And you just kind of want revenge? A moment where you're all of a sudden in the powerful position? Where you're in the, you're in the position where everybody wants your friendship? Where everybody wants to hear from you? And do you realize that in this moment, the first time the disciples took the gospel out, that is not what they had. The first time they go to share the gospel with the people, they don't have people who are sitting there thinking they're the greatest thing. They have people who think they're drunk. They have people who are confused because these ignorant, uneducated Galileans are speaking our language. Talking to us about God. I find it profound and I find it challenging that the very first time the church takes the message of the gospel out, the very first time that the church is empowered by God's Spirit, and that you have this amazing miracle happen where men who did not know these languages are speaking these languages by the power of the Spirit, that you don't get uh, kind of reverence, you don't get the crowd kind of uh, praising them and thinking they're amazing. You get the crowd thinking they're drunkards and, and the crowd not understanding how uneducated people can do this. They were still mocked. They were still doubted. They were not given the benefit of the doubt in this moment. And still, Peter stands up in verse 14 and he says, He stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. 
fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. <laughs> do, you, do you get this? That the first sermon, the first Christian sermon, was preached to explain that we're not drunk. Do you get how astounding this is? That the first time the Spirit came on disciples, the next step for the disciples is to try to convince people they're not drunk. Is this how you would think the power of God would be displayed in your life? Is this the situation you would want to be put in to witness to people? Oh, uh, it's something that Jews have been waiting for for centuries. The Spirit of God on His people. <laughs> you know, like when I was a kid, I wanted magic so badly, right? So badly. Thanks to Aladdin. It's a great show. Great movie, great soundtrack. And, 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 like, and, and, and one, of the, one of the things that I've realized um, looking back is how kind of small my vision of it was because I thought if I got magic, like I could just snap my finger and my room would be clean, which is kind of like, that's so petty. Like, why, why do you want magic to clean your room? But nonetheless, as like when I was like six or seven, that seemed like the big obstacle in my life that if I just had to get over. But, but like, you know, I don't know if as a kid you ever daydreamed about having magical powers, right? Like going out and doing amazing things and wowing people. Like the response you could get. By the way, early on in, in, in the 100, 200 years after um, the founding of, of the church, after Jesus' death, you get people um, that are heretics who are writing false gospels about Jesus. And you just look these up. But what's interesting is that they start inventing all these stories of Jesus as a kid. And it's exactly how, as a kid, I would use powers, right? It's Jesus, at one point, he slides down a sunbeam. Right? Another point, like a, like a kid mocks him and like he strikes him dead or something, you know? Another point, he like throws a, a rock and it turns into a bird. Like, that's what you want. When, like, if you're a disciple, you get the spirit. You want to go out and start throwing rocks and they turn into pigeons, you know, riding on sunbeams. And you get people thinking you're drunk. That's how the power of God shows up in your life. God enables you to speak in a language you didn't know. And what happens is people think you're drunk, they make fun of you, and they're confused about how someone as, as idiotic as you could speak in these languages. That's the context that the, of the first time the disciples shared the gospel. And Peter stands up and he says, uh, 15, These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel. I'm going to read this. Next week we're going to come back. This is not the conclusion. But I'm just letting you know, we're, going to, we're kind of starting the speech. And next week we're going to do the bulk of the speech, right? Um, but he says that and he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he quotes from Joel and he says, this is what you're seeing. In other words, you think we're drunk. You think we're idiots. You don't have an explanation of what's happening. You want to know? Let me explain to you what's going on is what God had said he would do. He's doing do you see that these disciples, Peter and the others, in that room, not knowing how they're going to witness to people, not knowing how they're going to go out into a city of 150,000 people and share the gospel, that the first opportunity they get is for them to defend themselves after they look idiotic, after they look stupid, after they look drunk. And they just simply stand up. They don't insult the crowd. 
They don't kind of hold inserts, insults back at them. We live in a culture that everybody's insulting each other. I don't care what your views are politically. Um, this is not like a political statement. It's a statement about we have a president who most of the news stories about him were about insults he met of other people. And most of the, most of the news cycles about other things, you know, whether it's in sports or whatever, we focus on these type of insults. And we have, we have here the disciples standing up being insulted, and they don't respond that way. Like in our culture, you get insulted, you insult back. They stand up and they say, you're going you're to call us drunk, you're going to call us stupid, that's fine. Let us just explain to you what God's doing. And that's how they begin. And the reason I find that amazing and insightful is when, is when I, I, I kind of came to this, I came to this just kind of putting myself in their mindset and thinking, I would get the power of God and I'd go out and do amazing things. And instead, they go out and their first opportunity to witness for Jesus is because they allowed God to work in their lives in such a way that they were vulnerable that they appeared weak, that they appeared stupid. And they shared the gospel as an explanation of what God was doing in the midst of their vulnerability, in the midst of their weakness, in the midst of them looking like they're idiots. So when you ask this question, what does it look like every day? What does it look like to be disciples, empowered by God, to go out and share the gospel with people? And Luke gives us a picture, kind of a look into the first time the church does it. And it looks like people who are willing to be mocked, willing to be vulnerable, willing to appear weak, willing to appear stupid, just so that they get a moment, just so they get a moment that they can explain what God is doing to someone. I, what struck me is... Most of you, it'd be easy for me as a minister, and I'll look out, and okay, probably most of us are not sharing the gospel. So what I need to do is tell you you need to share the gospel. But here's what I know is that most of you kind of understand you need to, right? But the problem that most of us hang up, get hung up on is how, which is why I began like I did. You know, we know what to do on a mission trip. We don't know what to do in our classrooms. We don't know what to do with our coworkers. We don't know what to do with our friends or with our relatives. That's where we get hung up. But as I was reflecting on this very moment about the disciples and what it would be like, what, I, what, what, uh, what it would be like to be in their situation, what I realized is that our question isn't really how do I share the gospel, how do I witness. Here's what our question really is. If you think about it, for the most part, I'm not saying some of you don't have that legitimate question. It's how do I share the gospel and not look stupid, or how do I share the gospel and make sure that I win. Or how do I share the gospel and make sure I'm not mocked? Do you notice the difference? Like every single one of you knows enough about Jesus to tell someone else. But what you're scared of, what I'm scared of, is being put in a situation where I look stupid or uncool or I'm vulnerable. Or I might talk about God to someone who doesn't really care. And I realized that in this moment that what the disciples have, men who just weeks before were terrified that, they were in a, they were, that people would find out they were Jesus' disciples. Peter lies to a girl to avoid being mocked. <laughs> and he stands up at this moment in the face of people mocking him and he just says, hey, this is what God's doing. And that's what I'm terrified of. I don't want to talk to a friend 
about God if they're going to think that I'm a loser for it. I don't want to talk to a friend if I'm worried that they're going to be offended. I'm not going to talk to a friend if I'm worried they're going to react badly. I'm not going to share the gospel with someone if I'm scared they're going to ask a question that I might not know the answer to and all of a sudden I might seem stupid. But the problem isn't that, isn't that we don't know how to share the gospel. It's that we don't know how to share the gospel and win or still seem cool or still seem respectable or still keep people looking at us the same way. Disciples aren't sent out into the world to be witnesses of themselves or their reputations or their own intelligence. They're sent out into the world to be witnesses of Jesus. You're not sent out into the world to build your kingdom. You're sent out into the world to build the kingdom of God. You're not sent out into the world to increase your glory. Gosh, Gerald Micah explained that. Man, he's so smart and funny at the same time. Who would have ever thought? And so well dressed, I know. He cuts his own hair. It's crazy. Like, you're not going out into the world so people talk more about you and how great you are. But as disciples, we get so hung up on that. Where did we ever get the idea that we needed a technique so that we were successful and we could kind of judge it? That we need to know the exact words so someone's not offended or the exact words so they think that we're really smart? Or I need to know all the questions I could possibly ask if we had 15 meetings. I need to know all the questions I could ask over the next 15 meetings so I have the answer kind of jotted down and memorized just so I don't seem like I'm stupid standing there. And the first time the church goes out, it's you guys are drunk, you guys are stupid. And Peter says, fine, let me just explain to you what, what you're missing. Let me tell you about God. In other words, what I'm trying to shift here is that the disciples didn't go out into the world with strength, that, that even, even though they had the power, this is what's crazy to me about this moment, even though they had the very power of God in their life, the, 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 the Spirit created the world, the Spirit can bring life to dry bones, they had that power, and they don't go out in strength, they go out in weakness. They go out in vulnerability. They go out in, and are okay being mocked for an opportunity to talk about God. And... We should know that because Paul says that when he was suffering right with the thorn in the flesh, that he was told, or that he, he kind of confesses that when I am weak, what? I am strong. The strength of the disciples in this moment, the strength of their witness, was in their willingness to appear weak and stupid and drunk and foolish and uneducated in the midst of thousands of people just to get an opportunity to talk about God. Do you get what you have? that they don't have. You are more theologically educated than these guys. I know I say that each week, but that's because I don't think you believe me. But you are more theologically educated than they are at this moment. You have more money than they have. You're in better health than they have, than they were. You have a bigger group of Christian friends than they had, just by being in this room. <laughs> Get this, you are a citizen of the most powerful nation in the world. They are subjects of the most powerful nation in the world. You can walk out here and praise Jesus and write John 3.16 you know, on your arm or whatever, and you can stand out and talk about it, and most people that pass by will say, praise God. They go out and talk about Jesus, they're mocked. You get the difference. You have all these things that they don't have, but I wonder if they had one thing that we're so unwilling to have, which is that they were willing to be fools for Christ. And we aren't. 
And I find this remarkable because, because like I grew up in kind of, uh, kind of uh, you might not believe this, but I grew up in kind of a very redneck in, environment, right? <laughs> and, um, and most of the men I knew were very happy to die for what they believe in. But I don't know many people that are willing to be mocked consistently for what they believe in. To get the, you kind of see, start to see the difference in, our li- in like how our lives are comported. This willingness to appear weak, vulnerable, to be mocked, all for an opportunity to share God. I think here of uh, uh, a girl I knew, uh, name was Megan, and Megan uh, was a, a relatively new believer. And she, and she, one day she had office hours with her uh, professor, and she walks in, and uh, and her professor is crying. She's like, "What's going on?" No, she's a freshman. This is a professor. She's intimidated, um, right? As as most of you would be. And she says, "What's going on?" And the professor explains that well, her, her I think her mom was was uh, in the hospital, and the professor didn't have a car. And this girl. She said to a professor, she said, are you a believer? And the professor said, no. And she said, well, I am. And would you mind if I prayed with you? And I would love to give you a ride home. Back, you know, she was from a couple of states away this weekend, if you need it. And as I thought about this, I thought about the, the, the willingness of this girl, Megan, to walk into a situation where she could easily be mocked, easily appear stupid. Could, could you imagine looking at a professor that's not a believer and saying, would you mind if I prayed for you? Because of what I believe, I think about a friend of mine, uh, Luke, who was who his whole life he'd been mocked. He hated being mocked, um, but his whole life he'd been mocked. And he was working at a job, and there was this one guy that kept mocking him and mocking him and mocking specifically his faith. And I would talk to Luke, and we would pray, and I just say, just keep being his friend, just keep being his friend. And Luke would keep talking about God to this guy, and this guy would keep mocking him, until one day, one day, this guy just said, you know what? I'm s- <laughs> no one else was around. And he just finally opened up to Luke and said, you know, I have a lot of religious people in my life and they've never treated me well. And I'm just kind of mad at them. But I still think there's a God. And so Luke got a chance to share the gospel with this guy. Why? Not because this guy thought Luke was cool. I will tell you right now, Luke's not cool. And Luke was not smarter than this guy. And this guy didn't come to think Luke was cool because of his response. But Luke was willing to be mocked and mocked and mocked and waited for an opportunity when he could start to talk about God to this guy. I think about shortly after I was baptized, I was, in, uh, <clears throat> I was with a friend, and well, so a friend of mine uh, and I went with another friend to a concert. Anybody ever heard of the band named Fish? You should. Okay, uh, so we went to see Fish, and um, this is right after I became a Christian, and there's a big kind of drug culture surrounding it. And this is true. The first time I talked to a non-believer about God, it was sitting in a circle, and they were passing a bong around. And it came to me. This is a true story. And, uh, and I said, no, I'm good. And they're like, well, why? And I'm like, well, uh, and then in that moment, I can still remember how I felt. Like I didn't want to tell them why. I didn't want to tell them why because they would mock me, right? Well, I mean, I'm a Christian now. In that moment, I was faced with a choice. Was I willing to start talking about how God had just changed my life in front of a group of people that I knew weren't believers and I knew would mock me and then knew I thought I was stupid and knew I think I was naive, all because I wasn't you know, going to partake? And that situation was placed before me. If we're not willing to be mocked, if we're not willing to appear stupid, then we're not going to be given a chance to let the very power of God show through in those moments. And I wonder in your life, this week, 
What opportunities God is going to put in your way. Not for you to sound intelligent, not for you to be cool, not for people to think that you're this great person and you should go share the gospel with everybody because you did such a good job with it. But I wonder about the opportunities you're going to have this week for you to seem stupid and foolish and uneducated simply because you're a believer, simply because God is doing something in your life. If we had time, we could go through so many examples but of, of, of how you might be put in that situation. But you might have a friend talking to you about relationships and why you've chosen to keep your relationship pure. You know how we get in the situations where we, we could start talking about our faith, but instead we kind of back off and talk about, well, it just makes sense. I've, you know, it's just better for our relationship. And instead you get an opportunity at that moment to share what God calls you to. Or an opportunity to, instead of kind of couching your change in major in terms of you know, economics or preference, and start talking about what God is doing in your life. God will put those opportunities in front of you. God is at work in every single one of your lives, and His Spirit empowers you, but not so that you appear strong. So in these moments, you might appear foolish and stupid and weak, but you might get a chance to witness to God, and people will hear that, and people will know the greatness of God in that moment. Let's stand and sing.